We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525 nature of baptism found in Matthew 28 to the purpose of baptism in Romans chapter 6. We're continuing our look at our children in the covenant of grace. Join us, Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. We're straight ahead. mini-series, if you will, out of the book of Luke. We've come across chapter 18, verses 13 through 17 of Luke, and our children in the covenant of grace, which has given us pause to consider the nature of baptism and today, the purpose of baptism. Paul has an awful lot to say about it here in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. That's where we catch up with our teacher and pastor, Gary Wagner, for today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. I'd like to talk to you today about the purposes of baptism so that you can better identify with why Christ has blessed us with this sacrament. But before we do, let's review what we learned last week about the nature of baptism. First of all, we saw that baptism historically replaced circumcision of the Old Testament as the sign and the seal of the covenant in the New Testament. And the reason baptism replaced circumcision was because baptism, theologically, is the fulfillment of everything circumcision symbolized in the Old Testament, but without the blood. Baptism is now the sign and the seal of our union with Christ and our renewal or new birth by the Holy Spirit, which circumcision was a sign and a seal of, In the Old Testament. And the command to bear the sign and administer the sign of the covenant to all members of your household down to newborns has never been abrogated. It has never been nullified. The command to give the members of your household the sign of the covenant is as much in effect now as it was when God gave that command to Abraham, so that not to bear the sign of the covenant in yourself, or not to give the sign of the covenant to your children, is to live as if you know better than God. Now, after telling you all this, the Bible tells us the sign of the covenant has changed. The command has not changed, but the sign of the covenant has changed from circumcision to baptism. Now the question is, why did God change the sign of the covenant? My following comments are taken from a book that I would highly recommend to you by Randy Booth entitled, Children of the Covenant. He says, this changed is based on the New Testament truth And that is that the new covenant is far more glorious than all the older covenants of the Old Testament. 
The new covenant in Christ brought such significant changes to the history and life of the human race that the new covenant demanded a new sacrament, yet not as to invalidate the basic principles of the older covenant of promise. Now, here's the thing to remember. There is a unity and a discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The unity is that the new covenant in Christ, about which the New Testament speaks, and the older covenants of promise in the Old Testament, are both based on the same principles and are administered and carried out based on the same principles. But the discontinuity is that they have different sacraments as signs. And this is why the new covenant is an expansion of the blessings of the old covenant. You may ask, how? The new covenant has brought a greater degree of blessings. The old covenant believers experience the same blessings we experience, but we have them in abundance. Scripture tells us they had life, but we have life more abundantly. The new covenant is expanded in that the blessings are extended to more people. Largely, but not exclusively, in the Old Testament, the blessings of the covenant were given to Israel. And if you wanted to get in on the covenant, you had to be a citizen of Israel or migrate to Israel to become a citizen. But in the New Testament, you have neither Jew nor Gentile. The covenant is no longer ethnically defined And moreover, the numbers are greater. The numbers of those who shall participate in the new covenant will be far greater than the number of people who participated in the old covenant. Furthermore, old restrictions have been removed in this new expanded covenant. Women and girls now receive equal redemptive and covenantal blessings. In the Old Testament, there were restrictions Both circumcision and the Passover were confined to males. Only infant and adult males, of course, received circumcision, and only adult males participated in the Passover. The sacraments were restricted to males. The old restriction now in this expanded covenant is gone. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is not saying there is absolutely no difference between male and female in regards to their roles within the church. There are differences such as the rule and responsibility of the church. But as far as having the enjoyment of, of the sacraments and the enjoyment of the redemptive blessings of the covenant, now both male and female receive equal blessings. Now these things I have just mentioned are not minor changes. So they call for fresh signs and fresh sacraments that would draw attention to the expanded blessings of this new covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of the sacrificial and Ceremonial rites in the Old Testament were changed in order to reflect the completion of the redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed to Christ. But the blood of bulls and goats could not remove our sin. 
But the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that sacrificial system. And he has once for all accomplished all our eternal redemption. Therefore, various changes took place to reflect that completed redemption. For, for instance, we don't sacrifice animals in our worship service any longer. There is no literal temple that we take treks to a couple of times a year in Jerusalem. And we no longer have Levitical priests. And also because of the work of Christ fulfilling all the ornate symbolism of the Old Testament, fewer and less ornate ordinances were put into place in the New Covenant. We have fewer ordinances. They're not as embellished. They are not as ornate, but they are far more powerful. Water baptism replaced the rite of blood circumcision. Bread and wine in the Lord's Supper replaced the bloody Passover lamb. Let me once again read to you Randy Booth's summary of these things that I've just pointed out. He says, The shed blood of Christ meant there was no longer any need for blood to be shed as in the Passover lamb or in the rite of circumcision. For Christ's people to be cleansed and made pure. It pleased God for the water of baptism and the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper to mark the fact that His redemptive work was now completed and that there was no longer any need for blood to be shed, unquote. So simply put, the reason the sacraments have been changed is because of the nature of the new covenant. There are no more racial and sexual restrictions as there was in the old covenant. In the New Testament, both male and female are welcome to the sacraments. And there are no more sacraments requiring the shedding of blood because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So why did God give us baptism as a sign and a seal of the new covenant? Well, let's look, first of all, at the Westminster Larger Catechism. It asks the question, what is baptism? And it answers, baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament wherein Christ has ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost to be a sign and a seal of engrafting into himself, of remission of sins by his blood and regeneration by his spirit, of adoption and resurrection unto everlasting life, whereby the parties baptized are solemnly admitted into the visible church and enter into an open and professed engagement to be holy and only the Lord's. Now, we'll look at this in more detail, but to summarize, the Westminster Divines state, the purpose of baptism is first a sign and seal to reassure people of faith. That the blessings of salvation and baptism are also a pledge. And it's a time of covenanting. It's a time of confession of faith by which a person is solemnly admitted into the visible church. Now before we look at each of these purposes of baptism, there's something that I must point out. Which most Presbyterians and most Baptists don't recognize. We are all aware that Presbyterians differ from baptism concerning the mode of baptism, that is, how it is done, and the object of baptism, that is, whether it is based on a profession of faith or whether children of believers should be baptized. 
But most people don't realize that Presbyterians and Baptists differ with reference to the meaning and purpose of baptism. Most Baptists today believe that baptism is a commemoration of Christ's burial and resurrection. The texts they use to try and support the view are, first of all, 1 Corinthians 15, 29, which reads, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And then also Romans 6.35, which Daniel read earlier, and Colossians 2.12, which is merely a parallel passage. But there are several biblical objections to this view. First of all, 1 Corinthians 15.29, which I saw on most of your faces, is so obscure in its meaning that it would be irresponsible to use that text for their view on baptism. Romans 6 and Colossians 2, if you carefully study them, show that those texts can't support that view either, for there is no allusion in those texts to the mode of baptism. Romans 6 and Colossians 2, rather than saying that baptism commemorates the burial and resurrection of Christ, says that baptism signifies the believer's union with Christ. And by making baptism the commemoration of Christ's burial and resurrection is to destroy the analogy of the sacrament. There must be a resemblance between the visual sign and the spiritual reality that that sacrament symbolizes. And one of the things it symbolizes is our union with Christ that brings cleansing of sin. That's why we use water, because it is used for cleansing. And it is a sign and a spiritual seal of spiritual cleansing. Water is not like a tomb. It is for cleansing. So when some say immersion commemorates burial, you must ask, my friends, does water normally remind you of a grave? No, we normally think of cleansing something that's dirty. So our view is different than our brother Baptist, though we do love them. So what are the purposes of baptism then according to God's holy and infallible word? First of all, we remember that baptism and the Lord's Supper are sacraments which are signs and seals of God's covenant with His people. It is a sign that God holds up before you every time you see someone baptized that says, every person for whom I died is truly cleansed of their sins through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And it also seals God's blessing to His children, spiritually reassuring them excuse me, that his promises really belong to them. Now, what are the specific blessings of salvation that baptism signifies or is a sign of? And what are the specific blessings of salvation of which baptism is a seal, which reassures us as believers that they belong to us? Our larger catechism says that baptism is a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. 
a covenant of grace is that bond of fellowship that God has established with his people in the Lord Jesus Christ, which bond is intimate, it is unbreakable, and it is eternal. And in that bond of fellowship, we enjoy communion with God as friend with friend. And God also gives us a sovereignly dictated order of life by which we are to live as his friends would live. And that is found in his law word, the Bible. Hopefully you are familiar with Genesis 17, which we studied somewhat last week, where God makes this promise to Abraham. He says, I'll be a God to you and your children after you, down through the generations, an everlasting covenant. He then goes on to say, I want you to bear the sign of the covenant in your flesh, which is, of course, circumcision. Now turn with me to Genesis 17, because I don't want to paraphrase these important words. It says, first of all, in verse 11, that circumcision will be a sign of the covenant between you and I. But there in verse 13, it says, He that is born in thy house, and he that is bought with thy money, must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. So you are to bear the sign and the seal of baptism because it is in the sign and seal of baptism that God brings the blessings of the bond of union with Christ into your life and strengthens your communion with Him and makes you more faithful in your friendship with Him and more obedient to Him and His Word. So baptism is a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace, just as circumcision was in the Old Testament. It is a testimony from God that all who believe are members of this covenant and it reassures us that all the blessings and promises of God's covenant do in fact belong to us and our children down through the generations. It's a very interesting thing to take note of the fact that most Christians today have Christian parents. In fact, most Christians throughout the history of the world have had Christian parents, and it will remain true throughout the remaining of time within the humankind. Baptism is a sign and a seal of those rich covenant promises God makes to His people throughout their generations. Secondly, baptism is a sign and a seal of our engrafting into Christ. Now, engrafting is a horticultural word. It means to insert a twig or a cutting or a sprout of one tree or plant into the stalk or trunk of another tree or plant so that that cutting can grow and bear fruit. In the Bible, Christ is called the trunk, And we are the engrafted branches, particularly those of us who are Gentiles. We're said to be from the wild olive tree. And we have been grafted into the trunk, which is Christ. And to now, beloved, we are able to bear good fruit for Him because of our union with Him. This picture of being engrafted is taken from the 11th chapter of Romans. And if you would please turn to Romans 11. And keep in mind at the same time 
that that great passage, John 15, gives us a very similar picture of Christ being the vine and we being the fruit-bearing branches. Romans 11, 17 through 19. And if some of the branches be broken off, that is, the Jews, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be engrafted in. Verse 24. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Well, the point here is our union with Christ, which is, beloved, the very heart of Scripture, the very heart of the gospel message. Our union with Christ which the Holy Spirit creates and which we participate in through faith, a gift from God, is the source of all the blessings of salvation. And baptism is the sign and the seal of that union. Listen to Galatians 3, 26 and 27. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now these two verses are in sacramental language, and as I stated last week, you don't, if you don't have a grasp of sacramental language, there will be certain passages of God's Word that you'll have a hard time understanding and very possibly end up with some kind of false doctrine. Because of this spiritual union, listen carefully, because of this spiritual union between the visible sign and the spiritual reality that it signifies, there is a sacramental language the Bible uses in which it takes the words that describe the visual signs, washing in water or baptism, to describe the spiritual reality that they signify, which is regeneration. For instance, it says in 1 Peter 3.21, for baptism now saves you. Well, do the waters of baptism actually save you? No, but that of which baptism is a sign and a seal does save you. So here you see an instance in which the word for the visual sign, water, is used to describe and refer to the spiritual reality that it signifies a cleansed life by Christ's shed blood. It is not literally baptism that saves you. It is that which baptism signifies. That is the cleansing of sin's guilt by the blood of Jesus and the cleansing of sin's pollution by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to notice something about these two verses, 26 and 27. First of all, faith is a means of adoption. We are adopted into the family of God by faith. Second, grace a gift of God is the cause of our adoption. We are adopted not because of anything we have done or anything we deserve. Third, we are adopted into God's family because of our union with God. And fourth, our union with Christ is signified and sealed to us in baptism. 
we are intimately united to Christ. That in Peter's words says, John Calvin, we bear the name and character of Christ and are viewed in him rather than in ourselves. And that'll bring us to the end of our time today here on Abounding Grace with our teacher and pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Thank you for joining us today. It's our hope and prayer that we've been able to encourage you in Christ and stimulate your walk in him. To address questions, comments, prayer requests, or concerns, please call or write to us. We'd love to talk with you. 408-866-5607 is our phone number, 408 408- You're also welcome to visit our website. Drop us an email when you do, reformedheritage.org. Real simple, reformedheritage.org. A lot of information there about who we are. We would invite you again to stop by, reformedheritage.org. Or if you're writing to us, the address is PMB, post mailbox, 402, and the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, 95032. That address can be found on our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, simply call 408-866-5607. Copies of today's program are just $5. Mention today's date, and we'll get a CD out to you. And please remember that we are listener-supported which means when you link arms with us financially, we're able to continue the ministry here on this station. It's a great way to study God's Word together, isn't it? And we'd love to continue to do so. Would you prayerfully consider how God might be leading you to partner with us? We'd love to hear from you. Again, won't you call 408-866-5607 or reformedheritage.org. Sunday services, by the way, if you'd like to join us, are 2 in the afternoon. We're located at Lone Hill Church, 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org. Again, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. Further information can be found again at reformedheritage.org or by calling 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, God bless. (music) 